Well, he's one of my heroes. A movie was just released that told the story of his life. Major League Baseball just commemorated his legacy by having a day in his honor. They do it every year. And on that day, every player on every team wears his number, the number 42. His name is Jackie Robinson. He was the first African-American player to play Major League Baseball. And his story is a fascinating story. And one account I read was of his conversation with Branch Rickey, who was the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, who had the, the vision to employ the first African-American player on a Major League Baseball team. And he brought uh, Jackie Robinson into his office and began to prepare him for what was sure to come. All of the venom and vitriol and hatred that would be poured out upon him as he went from stadium to stadium. Ricky knew that there was great mistreatment heading Jackie Robinson's direction. And as he continued this list of all the things that he could expect, Jackie Robinson said this, Mr. Ricky, do you want a ball player who's afraid to fight back? And here's what Branch Ricky said. He said, I want a ball player with guts not to fight back. You see, it takes courage to not retaliate. It takes courage not to fight back. It takes courage not to take matters of vengeance into your own hands, but to leave them in the one who can handle it all. It takes courage. And I want us to think about that courage from our text this morning. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. How are we as followers of Christ to respond when we are mistreated? We're going to see an answer to this question, answers illustrated in the life of David. 1 Samuel chapter 24, we're going to begin reading in verse 1, we're going to read down through verse 7, but we're going to focus on chapters 24, 25, and 26, because all three chapters uh, carry the same theme that I want us to discuss. So if you're physically able this morning, I want to ask you to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. By the, great, by the way, I'm grateful for God's love. How about you? I love the theme on God's love and the music this morning. I, I got up early this morning. I was reading Psalm 90, a psalm of Moses. And in that psalm, he says, Lord, satisfy me in the morning with your love. So I walked into church thinking about the love of God. And then we're singing these songs, and it's just awesome. God is good. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold... David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. The Bible's a real book telling stories of real people. And it tells us what Saul had to do. Now, I live in a home with a preschooler, and so in our language, Saul went potty. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Behold, 
This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we come to you, Father, asking for your help. We know that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And so, Holy Spirit of God, I just pray that you would move with power in our midst. I pray that you would show us your strength, that you would show us your grace, that you would show us the, the, the power you have to change lives. God, I pray that you would manifest your presence in such a way that we would leave knowing we have met with God. Lord, use your word in mighty ways in our lives. We need your wisdom. We need your encouragement. We need your inspiration. So, Father, speak. Your servants are listening. And I ask you to Establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, as we've worked our way through the book of 1 Samuel, we've seen that Sam, uh, sorry, David was on the run for his life. Saul was the first king of Israel, uh, anointed uh, by God to be the first king, but because of his disobedience, the Lord decided to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to a man after his own heart, a young man by the name of David. But before David would be the king, functionally recognized by the people, there would be a period of time where Saul was still sitting on the throne. And we've seen that Saul grew insanely jealous of David and began to try to take uh, David's life. And so the last several chapters, we have seen David literally running for his life. And the same thing is happening in the chapters we're going to look at uh, today. But as we see David... Dealing with mistreatment, some principles rise to the surface. Now in chapters 24 and 26, David is mistreated, and he deals with mistreatment in a godly way. In chapter 25, David is mistreated, and he deals with it in an ungodly way. So we're going to learn some do's and some don'ts from the life of David. And we're going to answer this question. How should we respond when we are mistreated? Because if you live long enough... You're going to be mistreated. Some of you were mistreated this past week. Some of you are going to be mistreated this next week. I mean, mistreatment is real. We live in a fallen world. We're surrounded by evil. We're surrounded by uh, sinful people. And we're sinful ourselves. And so we should expect mistreatment to come. Now, how are we as followers of Christ to respond when mistreatment comes knocking on our door? Well, there are at least four answers to that question, some, some do's and some don'ts. Number one, don't be swayed by unbiblical advice. Do listen to wise counsel. Don't be swayed by unbiblical advice. Do listen to wise counsel. At critical moments in his life, David was given some bad advice. There in chapter 24, the story we just read, David and his men are hiding in a cave deep in the recesses of that cave, and Saul comes in by himself, unsuspecting, uh, to relieve himself, the Bible says, and while he's there, 
David's men say, David, this is your opportunity. Saul's here. He has no guards with him, no protection. You can do away with your greatest problem. You can do away with your greatest enemy in one fell swoop. As a matter of fact, look what they say to him there in verse 4. Men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. So they're quoting God here. God said, This is the day that you're supposed to take revenge. Now, where are they getting this from? I believe they're getting it from chapter 23, verse 4. Look in chapter 23 with me, verse 4. This is when the, the city of Keilah is being attacked by the Philistines, and David's trying to determine whether he should go and protect the city. So he asked God. Look what it says in verse 4. David inquired of the Lord once more, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Not Saul, the Philistines. But his warriors, David's warriors, took this to mean, he'll give all your enemies into your hand, and this must mean Saul. So David, here's your enemy, he's in the cave, he's unprotected, now's your chance. Go and kill him, take his life. This was bad advice. And he gets the same advice over in chapter 26. Turn with me to chapter 26 very quickly. Again, Saul with his army is hunting down David, and the Bible says in chapter 26 that the Lord had caused a deep sleep in verse 12 to fall upon the army of Saul, so they were deep within sleep, and David and his men were able to walk into the center of the camp, and they find Saul laying there with a spear stuck in the ground by his head. And look at the advice David gets in verse 7. David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke. I will not strike him the second time. David, you don't even have to do anything. No blood on your hands. I'll do the work, I'll get the spear, I'll kill Saul, problem solved, you don't have to run for your life anymore, you're the next king, come on Dave, let's do it, let's take matters into our own hands. He got some bad advice. Now I don't have any question that the men who were giving David this advice, listen to me, cared deeply for David. They were loyal, they loved him, they wanted what was best for him, and I want you to understand that sometimes those closest to us can give us the worst advice. Do you hear what I just said? Sometimes those that are closest to us can give us the worst advice because they're, they're so biased. They don't want to see you hurt. They don't want to see you mistreated. And so they may give you some very ungodly advice. Even though they, they care about you and want what's best for you, they, they may give you some ungodly advice because they can't see clearly to give you good advice. And David here has some very close comrades, friends, warriors, brothers, and they're giving him ungodly advice. And so at critical junctures in his life, David was given bad advice. But at one critical juncture in his life, David was given good advice. In chapter 25, there's a very interesting story. Chapter 25, we see that David is in the wilderness with his men, and he's close in proximity to... Uh, the holdings of a man named Nabal. Now, Nabal was a rich man. He had many sheep, many flocks, and many people employed as shepherds to watch over the sheep. And the Bible tells us in chapter 25 that David was friendly with Nabal's men. 
He would protect them, not, not let any harm come to them, protect Nabal's flocks for him. He was providing uh, just some, some oversight and protection for Nabal's holdings. He was doing good to his neighbor, Nabal. Well, one day, David needs some supplies for his men. So he sends an entourage of men to Nabal and says, Nabal, we've protected your shepherds. We've watched over your flocks. We haven't taken one sheep from you. We've done nothing but good. Could you spare some supplies? You're a wealthy man, a rich man. Could you give us some supplies so that we can have some things that we need? And Nabal responds with a smart, smart aleck answer. He says, who is David? I've never heard of him. Who's the son of Jesse? I've never heard of him. I'm not giving him anything. And he responds foolishly. As a matter of fact, the word Nabal, the name Nabal, means fool. And so, the men of David come out of David and say, Nabal blew us off. He's not going to help us out. And David flies into a rage. The Bible says he straps on his sword, gets 400 men. They begin to march toward Nabal's house. He's going to, he's going to dispense some justice. But Nabal's wise wife named Abigail heard of this story, heard of the way that Nabal responded to David's men, heard that David was marching to uh, take care of her husband. And so Abigail intervenes. She gets some supplies together, some, some gifts, some food, and she, she, she heads off David and she intersects him so that he can't make it to kill Nabal. And look what happens in verse 23 of chapter 25. When Abigail saw David, she, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey, and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. Please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord, watch this, has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. She's saying, David, God's been gracious to you. I've intersected you so you don't have to go and take vengeance into your own hands. You don't have to do that. You can let God handle it. God will handle it better than you. She gives him good advice. David, don't do this. It's the wrong move. And David comes to his senses. His blood's boiling, but, but then he, he gathers himself. He, he finds control of his emotions, and David knows that killing Nabal would not be the right thing to do. So at critical moments in his life, David was given bad advice, and David was given good advice. And here's the application for you and for me today. When we find ourselves in difficult situations, we need to make sure we are listening to the right people. The right people. People that are giving us not just what we want to hear, or not necessarily what they think is best, but people who are telling us what God says. People who are telling us what God thinks. People who are sharing with us biblical wisdom. We need to listen to the right people. Every year when tax season comes, I, I take my stuff to an expert because when it comes to tax information and, and all of that, I want to make sure I'm listening to the right person, not somebody that's, you know, doing their own thing and, you know, has their own views. And I want to listen to the right person that knows the law, knows everything well, and give me the right advice. 
And when it comes to matters of mistreatment, when your emotions are rising up in your heart, you need to make sure you're listening to the right folks. Because the wrong advice can cause you to do something that you'll regret till your dying day. And so, don't be swayed by unbiblical advice. Do listen to wise counsel. Number two, don't take matters into your own hands. Do trust God to handle it. Don't take matters in your own hands, but do trust God to handle it. In two instances, chapter 24 and 26, David resisted the impulse to seek revenge. In chapter 24, uh, look what he says as his men say, now's your chance. Won't you kill him? And look what happens in verse 4. David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he'd cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Now, a robe on a king represented his kingdom, represented his reign. So for David to tamper with his robe was to say, I I don't want you to reign anymore. I I want your reign to come to an end in my time and in my way. Verse 6, he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. Then look at verse 7. David persuaded his men with these words. That's not a really good translation. In the Hebrew, that word persuaded is the word tore apart. I mean, these men were were ready for action. They were ready to take Saul out, and David had to get get really forceful with them. He said, no, we will not retaliate. David was passionate about non-retaliation, passionate about not taking vengeance in his own hands. And so he resisted that impulse. Chapter 26, the same thing. Abishai says, here's the spear. There's Saul. He's in a deep sleep. I can end this right now. And David says, no, I will not. We will not stretch out our hand against the Lord's anointed. You see, David could uh, resist the impulse for revenge because David understood that God could handle his greatest problem. He understood God can handle it. Look in 24, chapter 24, verse 12. After Saul leaves the cave, David comes to the mouth of the cave when he's a safe distance away and says, Saul, I could have killed you. Here's your robe. And look in verse 12. He says, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. And so here's what David says. I'm not going to take revenge. God can handle that. I'm putting it in God's hands. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a single flea? In other words, I'm not going to harm you. The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David says, God can handle this. God's got this. May he avenge me. May he decide between us. I'm leaving this in the hands of God. Like what John Woodhouse writes about this this story. He writes, there was something very unusual going on here. David understood that the kingdom, which would certainly be his one day, was not for him to take by his own power. The kingdom had been given to Saul by God. In this sense, he is the Lord's anointed. And it was up to God to take it from him in his own time and in his own way. This was not politics as we know it. It was a power struggle, but different from the power struggles with which we are familiar. 
from David's side, there was a determined refusal in this matter to wage war according to the flesh. The kingdom could only properly come to him as God's gift. And so David said, the Lord named Saul as king. The Lord named me as next king. Now we'll let the Lord handle it as to timing. We'll let the Lord handle it as to how he's going to take care of Saul's threat against my life. And so we see in chapters 24 and 26, David resists that impulse for revenge, but not in chapter 25. In another instance, David loses perspective and seeks revenge. I mean, he just loses it. There in chapter 26, he hears the report back from his men concerning Nabal saying, we'll not give you any supplies. And David flies into a rage, and he gets 400 men. I like what Chuck Swindoll says about these 400 men. He writes, 400 men? That'll probably handle Nabal, don't you think? Hey, nobody puts on a sword just to have a discussion, so we have a pretty good idea of what's going through David's mind here. But talk about overkill. There's no need to take 400 men to squash one tightwad. Then he says this, David has lost control. When we're mistreated, we're not careful, we'll lose control. And we will take matters into our own hands. We lose perspective, biblical perspective, what God wants, what God thinks. We think we have to handle it because we don't think God will handle it or, or, or can handle it. And we take matters into our own hands. So here's the question that we all must answer Is my God big enough and wise enough to handle this situation better than me? Is my God big enough and wise enough to handle this situation better than me? You say, wait, I'm not convinced yet that I don't need to respond to people when I'm mistreated by getting them back. Well, turn to... Romans with me, Romans chapter 12, New Testament. If you're not convinced, I want to show you the words of Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. These verses that we're about to read remove remove all ambiguity. God is very clear here how we're to respond when mistreated. Look in verse 17 of Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. That's pretty clear, right? Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Verse 19, never take your own revenge. I repeat, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Bible is clear. We are not to seek vengeance. God is big enough and wise enough to handle it. So we place those issues in his hands. When we are mistreated and we seek to get someone back, We are sinning. We are violating the clear commandments of Scripture. The question is, is my God big enough and wise enough to handle the situation better than me? So resist the temptation to get folks back. Don't do that, but do leave it in God's hands. Trust Him with it. He's trustworthy, amen? 
years ago, I was pastoring a church in Memphis, and I was in seminary, and I had a buddy that asked me if I could help him on a weekend with some umpiring. He had a church league uh, running, and it was a, a co-ed youth softball league, and they were having just a tournament on a Saturday. So he said, wait, could you help me umpire? So I said, sure, I'll do that, no big deal, you know. So I show up to umpire this co-ed youth softball tournament. Before I know it, parents are yelling at me. I'm just volunteering. I'm just helping out. You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to be a good guy, trying to help out my buddy. And they are, they are yelling at me through the fence. And at one point I got indignant. I thought, I'm a pastor. I'm a man of God. I see behind the pulpit every Sunday. They're yelling at me. Who do they think they are? And I, and I got indignant and... and uh, Pretty soon I started turning around and talking back to him, which is never wise. And then I finally had to say, I'll just pray for you. And then one lady said, I'll pray for you too. And so it was, it was, it was, it was ugly. I mean, it was ugly. Now, you know how I felt in that moment? I felt absolutely mistreated. I was just trying to be a good guy, do a good deed, you know, just have a... This is not, this is not the World Series, folks. It was not going to be on ESPN that night. You know what I mean? But these parents lost control, and I felt very mistreated, and boy, I wanted, to, I wanted to fight back. I really did. And I started to, and I had to kind of pull back the reins before I did something I would regret or say something I would regret. But I, I wanted to fight back, and we all want to fight back. But when those moments come, you've got to trust God. He's big enough, He's wise enough to handle our mistreatment. Which leads me to number three. Do's and don'ts. You ready? Don't harbor bitterness. Do proceed with wisdom. Don't harbor bitterness, bitterness, but do proceed with wisdom. Now this is a very important point that comes from chapter 24 and 26. When you place a situation in God's hands, you still need to maintain caution. You still need to maintain caution. Look at the end of chapter 24. Verse 16, after David comes to the mouth of the cave and says, Saul, I could have killed you and I did not. Look how Saul responds in verse 16. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He, he, it's obvious Saul's in the wrong here. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king, that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul. Now, you say, wait, what happens next? I mean, they're friends now, right? Saul said, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? You're going to be the next king. You know, God's obviously going to make that happen. Please don't destroy my family when you become king. So they're friends now, right? Go home, you know? Put your arm around each other and, and go back to the palace. Go back to Jerusalem. Is that what happens? Look what happens next. And Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. You see, David had done the right thing. But only time would tell if Saul was going to do the right thing. So in the meantime, David had to be cautious. For him to just 
go back to Jerusalem with Saul would have been foolish because chapter 26 tells us Saul started to try to hunt him down again to kill him. Saul was not being sincere here. And look what happens in chapter 26. Chapter 26, verse 21. Again, after David had the chance to kill Saul, he gets to a safe distance and says, Saul, wake up. I could have killed you. I was in your camp. I have your spear right here. And look how Saul responds. Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, David. Come here, David. For I will, I will not harm you again because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I've played the fool and have committed a serious error. David replied, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. Again, friends, right? They made up. David did the right thing. Saul saw his error. Everything's good now, right? Look at the next phrase. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. David here puts it in God's hands, but David here is still erecting some wise boundaries around his life to make sure that Saul is the real deal, that Saul is truly changed. And only time tells if someone is truly changed. You see, even though your heart may be right with God, only time will tell if others are committed to do the right thing. And until that time comes, you've got to be wise. You can't let them uh, continually harm you and your family. You've got to have some wise boundaries around your life. So wait, am I to forgive someone that does me wrong? Yes, a thousand times yes. But we need to learn to practice forgiveness with some wise boundaries. So wait, what are the boundaries I should have around my life? What are some boundaries I should have in my relationships? Well, that's where you need some wise counsel, some godly folks that, that love you and, and, and will speak to you the truth of the Word of God and, and let them encourage you and counsel you. But listen, even though you've done the right thing, it doesn't guarantee that the person that mistreated you is going to do the right thing. Matter of fact, Romans 12 says, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So when it comes to you, you be at peace you don't respond, you don't retaliate, you don't, you don't take vengeance into your own hands, but as far as they're concerned, you can't control what they do. And so you forgive, you let go of the bitterness, but you proceed with wisdom. You make sure you have some wise boundaries around your life so they can't do further harm to you or to your family. And so there's some do's and don'ts in this passage, Right? Don't be swayed by unbiblical advice. Do listen to wise counsel. Don't take matters into your own hands. Do trust God to handle it. Don't harbor bitterness. Do proceed with wisdom. And fourth and last, don't give in to your flesh. Do follow the example of Jesus. Don't give in to your flesh. Do follow the example of Jesus. Taking matters into our own hands is natural. When David heard the report back from his men that had gone to Nabal for supplies, David flew into a rage. I mean, he was mistreated, it was unfair, and David straps on his sword. He was just doing what comes naturally. And when you're mistreated, and you get angry, and you want to retaliate, you know what you're doing? You're doing what comes naturally. That's what the flesh says you ought to do. You ought to retaliate. You ought to get them back. It feels good to get folks back. As a matter of fact, I was evaluating one day 
my love for westerns. I love westerns, you know, John Wayne movies and all that. And, and I think, why do I like westerns so much? And I like it because the bad guy always gets it in the end, right? I mean, he comes in, wreaks havoc, and you just know through the movie, he's going to get him, he's going to get him. And when he gets him, you're like, yes, it feels so good. And then I watched a movie uh, one time called The County Monte Cristo, and based on a great novel. And, and in this movie, he is mistreated to the nth degree. And he, he, wants to, he wants to get the folks back, wants to seek revenge. But at the end of the movie, he realizes revenge doesn't satisfy. Your, your, your natural inclination is get revenge. But the point is this, revenge doesn't satisfy. It will only lead to your own bitterness and destruction and misery. And so taking matters in our own hands is natural. But listen, trusting God with something is supernatural. In other words, you can't do it in your own strength. When you're mistreated, you cannot forgive and let go of bitterness and leave it in God's hands in your own power. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It takes a spirit-filled life. It takes a maturing Christianity to be able to place matters of injustice in God's hands. To place matters of unfairness in God's hands. It takes real maturity and it takes the work of the Spirit in your life. You see, the cross is the preeminent example of non-retaliation for the glory of God. So Wade, why should I not retaliate? Why should I place it in God's hands? Because that's what Jesus did. And if you want to be Christ-like, don't retaliate. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 20. Remarkable passage of Scripture here. The Bible says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? In other words, sometimes we we bring some, some things on ourselves because we act foolishly. But, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, when you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Sometimes, we're just minding our own business, trying to live for the Lord, trying to do the right thing, be a good neighbor, be a good citizen, and all of a sudden, mistreatment comes out of nowhere. And Peter writes here, when you are suffering, even though you're doing the right thing, and you endure it, this finds favor with God. Because look at the next verse. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to, for you to follow in his steps. What example did Jesus leave? Verse 22. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was perfect. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Here's what the Bible's saying. Jesus did nothing wrong. He committed no sin. He did nothing deserving punishment or death or beating or mockery or derision. Jesus was perfect. He was good. If you read the Gospels, all he did was good. He taught. He healed. He ministered. He loved. And yet we see these cruel men putting Jesus to death on the cross. You say, wait, why did Jesus go through with it? Listen, in obedience to his Father. 
He knew that if he obediently went to the cross and died for our sins, then we could be saved. Salvation would be made available to all of humanity. And he knew that God would get glory from that. So in the midst of his great mistreatment, Jesus did not revile in return. He didn't fight back. He trusted God to handle it all. He trusted his Father to handle it all. And it's interesting to note that he trusted his Father. And when you're suffering, when you're being mistreated, listen, you're trusting your Father. Which reminds us all that even in the midst of your mistreatment, you're loved. Right? God loves you. He loves you. You never have to doubt that. So because he loves you, because he's powerful, because he's good, because he's wise, you can place that mistreatment, you can place that that sense of unfairness and injustice and hurt, you can place it in the hands of God. You can. It's what Jesus did. He leaves us an example to follow in his steps. Don't give in to your flesh. The natural thing to do is, is retaliate when you are mistreated or maybe when you're Family's mistreated. How about when your children are mistreated? I've heard many mamas say, when it comes to my kids, my, my claws come out. Right? Mama bears, right? What about when your child is unfairly called out in a baseball game? What if your, your child isn't, doesn't get the first chair in the band? Well, you come running and fixing it and manipulating and fighting. Or you show them, hey, listen, when we're mistreated, we leave it in God's hands. We have boundaries, but we leave it in God's hands. And we show the folks that are mistreating us the love of Christ. Because nothing gets folks' attention like someone that will not retaliate. Nothing looks more like Jesus than non-retaliation in the, in the midst of unjust suffering. And so don't give in to your flesh. I know it feels good to try to get folks back. It feels like that's what you need to do. But, but follow the example of Jesus Christ. See, the question is for you and for me, do we have the guts? Do we have the supernatural, spirit-filled courage to not fight back.